Dr. Fab Sagebin was born in the south of Brazil and grew up in Utah. He studied biology and chemistry at UVU before attending NYU School of Medicine. He trained in cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Rochester with an emphasis in advanced heart failure and a mechanical heart technology. In 2019, he was recruited to Southern California, where he started Orange County's first mechanical heart program. In 2023, he and his wife launched Che, a plant-based coffee and energy drink alternative. He lives in San Clemente with his wife and four boys and is one of my husband, Neil's best friends from high school, which we'll talk about today. This episode is intensely entertaining and fun and educational. If you've ever watched and enjoyed a medical TV drama, you will absolutely love today's interview with Fab, where he tells some pretty wild stories from surgical residency. He shares his journey with us going from not even planning to get a college education to becoming a heart surgeon and why he chose that specialty. We also get to talk about health and what you should actually be looking out for if you're over 30 and want to be heart healthy. And if Fab's drink Che has changed your life like it has ours, Neil getting off energy drinks and me overcoming the energy low of postpartum depression, you'll also love hearing why and how he created Che and the things he put into Che as a doctor that he knew every adult needs on a daily basis. You're going to be seriously entertained and educated today. And if you haven't tried Che yet and you want to, you can use code MintArrow to get 15% off your order. Now onto the episode. Okay, today we have Dr. Fab, Fabio Sagebin. Fab, you can see it, Fabio, right? You know, it's uh, Fab. I like Fab. You it's like kind of come back since high school, yeah. Okay, and this is a very unique podcast episode because you two know each other really well. Yes. And so let's start there. How do you know each other? From high school, I guess. I guess that's the short answer. You know, Neil's one of my best buds from high school. We had big adventures together and I'm super stoked that you're in Southern California. I'm a little ashamed that we don't hang out more often. What are the odds (laughs) that we're, yeah, close by each other and landed in the same? It's so cool. I'm so excited. So are there any fun high school memories that you can share, either of you? Not a lot we can share. (laughs) Okay. But there's a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just leave it at that. Um, we We had good times. We were good. We were good kids. And then you also hung out after you served missions, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that like, I don't know if you know this, but that was a really impactful kind of number of years. We, I saw a lot of people post-mission who kind of just fell off, fell away and just kind of didn't know what they were doing. I remember hanging out with a big group of the high school gang a few weeks after the mission and it was fine. It's not like people were being crazy, but I just remember being like, I feel like nothing changed. Yeah. And in a bad way. And I was like, I'm not really into this anymore. Neil and Carter, I could tell felt the same way. Our good friend Carter has passed away. But, you know, Neil and Carter, I know, felt the same way. And so we kind of just banded off the three of us. Yeah. And we would go do like responsible return mission. Like we'd go country <laughs> dancing. We would like, we would do like what you're supposed to do. We would like take people on dates and do those kinds of things. And I, I remember being like, this is right. Yeah. This is how I feel like my post-mission life should be. Like, I don't want to go to big parties and just like do nothing and just hang out. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I want to move on with life. Yeah. So that was super important. Those were like really, same same for me, really yeah. impactful, exact same experience, really. It was such a great time. 
of life. And I think just being around other people who were like-minded and were just trying to be good and do good things, it just, it felt so good and felt so right. And it was a really happy time. That's really cool. And I love that you both mutually, because Neil has told me the same thing. I feel like you built each other up. That's yeah. What friends should do. Yeah. And we would talk so. years later. I mean, we'd check in like once every, a couple of months or a couple, you know, a year or so. I remember we would talk and church would come up and totally. we'd kind of check in like, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Sweet. All right. Let's keep going. You know? Yeah. So Fab, after your mission, or maybe it was before your mission, when did you, first of all, decide to be a doctor? For people who knew me in high school, I was a knucklehead. I, I, I barely graduated high school. My GPA was like 2.6. I didn't take the SATs. I, I had no business in a classroom. I wasn't interested. My dad did construction and I'm like, I'll probably do that. I was a missionary in New York City. It was such an important, I mean, everybody says this and it's so hard to overstate it, but it, it set the pace for my whole life. I kind of learned how to be comfortable in my own skin on my mission. While I was out there kind of winding up as a missionary, my mission president was like, okay, you're a few months from going home. What's the plan? And I was like, um, I, I think I'm going to do construction with my dad. And, you know, it was kind of a rambling answer, nothing concrete. And he saw like right through it. And he just very perceptively looked at me and he was like, you're going to go to school. You're going to get an education. And it was like a Jedi mind trick. And I was yeah. like, I'm going to go to school. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. So I went home and Having not taken those tests, I needed like open enrollment. So a few months later, I ended up at UV, UVSC at the time. And I met with a counselor and she's like, okay, these are the classes you have to take, your generals. And one of them was biology, like, you know, general biology. And like a week into that class, I'm like, this is not general biology. I'm like, this is super hard. Like people are failing all over the place. A few days after we started, I'm sitting in the cafeteria at UVU with some kids from my biology class. I'm like, why is this so hard? I'm like, this is like intro biology. Isn't this supposed to be like high school or something? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. And they're like, bro, this is pre-med biology. Like, did you not know that? (laughs) And I was like, no, I did not know that. And and then I just asked them all these questions. I'm like, I thought doctors like, I don't know, like life sucks as a doctor and why would you do it? And I just kind of picked their brains for the first time. I was like, well, I'm not leaving, so I'm going to study hard. And me and like five kids got A's in that class. It was a small group. It was a really tough class. And then for the first time, I was like, oh, maybe maybe if I study, I'm like not such a knucklehead. I can apply myself. And so I'm like, well, what's the next pre-med class? And and I was newly married at the time. And my like dear, faithful wife, really, like I had no idea what I was doing. She just was like, hey, maybe this kid's going somewhere. I'm going to hitch my wagon to this for some reason. <laughs> But, you know, a few months later, I had knocked out a few of those classes and we were like, you know, this makes sense in a lot of different ways. The pathway to become a physician is so long, right? Right. So no matter what you study in college, you have to do your pre-med classes. So you can do fine arts, but you still have to take biology and chemistry and organic chemistry and all these things. And it's tough. You have to take this big test. It really is one of those things that you have to chip away at a day at a time. And before you know it, it's like, wow, I'm taking the MCAT. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, I'm applying to school. Wow, I'm getting interviews. And you just kind of find yourself in it before you know it. But, you know, it's one of these funny themes, I think, that that members of the church can relate to. Sometimes you just you just know what the next step is. You don't know what the future holds. 
you just see enough through the fog to know that this step feels right. And that's enough for me right now. And that's kind of how I got started. I love that. So then when did you decide that you wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon? So I went to medical school at NYU in Manhattan. Life as a medical student is so weird because you know a little, but you also know nothing. Mm -hmm. And you're in a very structured hierarchy. Like a, a third year medical student is barely getting their clinical experience. So you do two years of didactic. That just means you're in the classroom. It's like college. Mm -hmm. Some anatomy, some of this, some of that. But as a third year medical student, you are part of a medical team. You're called a, a clerk. So you're a medical clerk. And so you're part of the medicine team or the surgery team. And you do rotations to get experiences. So you rotate through neurology and surgery and OBGYN and everything and kind of figure out what resonates with you. That's all anyone talks about when you're a third or fourth year medical student. Like, what are you going to do and why? And like, what are the ways you decided? And it's like this big mystique and everyone's like looking for answers and everyone's like, it's just such a time in life where you're deciding. And I remember talking to to people who like, oh, this guy's going to do surgery. I would ask him like, hey, why do you want to do surgery? It was like such a matter of fact answer, just like, because it's cool and I like it and you make good money. And I was like, huh. And when I'd ask like a pediatrician, hey, why did you want to be a pediatrician? It was like a really like <laughs> beautiful answer. And like, well, when I was a child, this happened. And I, it was like, so, and I just remember being like, you know, I'm, that, that's not me. That's not the way I really feel. Some of it is kind of brutal honesty with yourself. And just like, hey, what's interesting to you? What, it, it, at any given day, you can go and diagnose a rare disease. You can go and talk to someone for two hours about their family history of whatever, or you can go see open heart surgery. And in my head, after like I stripped away all these pretenses and all of this ego, and I was just like left with myself, it was like, yeah, open heart surgery is awesome. It's fun for me to observe and to participate in. And that's just the beginning. And like, I, I work with medical students today and I always tell them, I'm like, don't complicate it. Like, what, what are you into? What's interesting to you? Because here's the thing, you're going to do that for the rest of your life. Okay. You're going to do that for a long time. Right. And if you hate being like an oncologist, your parent, your, your patients are not going to be cool with that. Yeah. They can tell, they right. can tell if you hate what you're doing. So do yourself a favor and do what's fun for you. And that's just the very beginning. Once you open that door and you're doing what's fun for you, it's like this whole world opens up about like professional development and how you can become an expert and what you can add in terms of value to the world. And because I'll tell you something, there's nothing scarier than facing an operation, especially a life or death operation. It's terrifying for people. And they'll remember, like to you, it's the third patient you saw that day. Mm -hmm. To them, you're their heart surgeon. You're the only heart surgeon they're ever going to have, probably. They're going to memorize every expression that you made during that interaction. For sure. And if you're not careful with that, like you can really mess some things up. You can really do some damage to people. And so like that's really intense, right? And for some reason, like I just gravitated to that kind of thing. I was into it. That's so cool. Actually, I just really need to know to just conceptualize this start to finish. Mm -hmm. What did it look like for you to become a doctor? Okay. So it's three or four years of undergrad, depending on what you study. 
it's four years of medical school, and then it's residency. And residency has several different pathways and different lengths of time depending on what you do. So if you want to be a cardiac surgeon, it's at least six years. Although there are different pathways to become a cardiac surgeon, traditionally you would do five years of general surgery, plus or minus one or two years of research, Mm -hmm. and then a fellowship, Mm -hmm. which is two or three years. So the traditional pathway was like a 10-year deal after medical school. Okay. When I was applying, they had these integrated programs. There was one at Stanford, one at Columbia. There was one at Penn and then one at the University of Rochester, upstate New York. They condensed it to six years as an integrated cardiothoracic residency program. And you know, we were really lucky. We worked really hard and got one of those spots. So for me, it was six years after medical school. So four years college, four years med school, six years of training. And the wow. training is the toughest part because they, as a medical student, you are, you're paying money, right? You're bringing revenue to the hospital. They treat you like you're a client, an important client. You know, life is great. You have no responsibility. Your job is just to learn. You contribute a little, but most of your job is learning. Mm-hmm. And when you're a resident, it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> you, you're just, especially your first year, you're an intern. You don't know anything. The best case scenario is you don't hurt someone and you're working 80 hours a week at least. So it's a little bit of a shock when you enter that phase of training. So at what point are you the surgeon in the room in charge? Like your first day that you show up outside of those programs? Yeah, so it's technically, yes. Technically, your first case as the surgeon of record, as the attending surgeon, is when you're out in practice. But it's a gradual handoff. So as a first-year resident, you're you're doing a little, but not very much. You're learning the basics. A lot of people don't know this, but surgery is not just about technically performing a procedure. Surgery is using surgical tools to diagnose and treat specific problems. So I have to know a lot of medicine. I have to understand a lot of critical care. I have to understand a lot of pharmacology to take care of someone appropriately who's had cardiac surgery. And all of that happens in your first few years of training. It's not just about sewing blood vessels together. It's, it's about learning the medicine of your specialty. So that happens in the first few years. And then your third, fourth year, you're doing more of the operation under the supervision of an attending surgeon. And that's, I had this crazy experience. So part of doing cardiac surgery, you have to use a machine called a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. If you can imagine, you know, you make an incision through the breastbone, which is called your sternum, you put a retractor in, and now you're looking at the heart. And the heart has four big chambers in it. To do an operation, you can't, you know, your heart's beating. If you touch it, your heart will often fibrillate. You you can cause cardiac arrest by handling a heart. So you have to kind of dance around the heart and you have to use these big tubes that you place in strategic positions in the heart that take blood out of the heart into this machine and then pumps blood back into the heart. And that's what constitutes cardiopulmonary bypass. And every operation basically has to use that setup. Just to get the operation started, it's super gnarly and dangerous. And one of my first experiences was doing that part of the operation. So I'm like a first or second year resident. What you have to do is take a stitch in your hand and you have to create a little box on the aorta. So, you know, Google what an aorta is and you'll see it's a big blood vessel that comes off the heart and it's moving with every heartbeat. And you have to gently create a little box using the suture. And then you take a scalpel and you put it in the middle of that box and you put a hole in the aorta. And it's pressurized. If you, if you don't put your finger on that hole, it'll, it'll hit the ceiling. 
And then you have to take a tube in one hand and you have to put it inside that hole without making too much of a mess. I mean, I, it sounds crazy, right? So that does sound crazy. This is one of my first times <laughs> doing it. And you're yeah. like a first or second year <laughs> yeah, resident yeah, doing yeah, this? Yeah, pretty early. So, this but is what I'm, you don't want the families to know. Right, that. right, exactly. I know. So like, I'm with a very senior surgeon who is a huge mentor to me. And he's watching, kind of like smirking under his mask, I can tell. And I'm in that stage where I've made the little box. I made the incision with the scalpel in the aorta with one hand. And with my other hand, I'm covering it so it doesn't bleed. And I'm like trembling. And now I have to take a tube and lift that little flap and put a tube in the aorta without making, without killing someone, basically. Now, it all sounds very dramatic. And after I've done hundreds of these, I, I realized it wasn't as dramatic. But at the time, I couldn't do it. I was struggling to do it. And there was blood that was kind of filling the surgical field. And my attending just took a step back from the table and folded his arms. And he's like, what are you going to do? What's your plan? <laughs> And he oh just sat there oh and let me struggle. Now, it, it sounds crazy at the time, but like to, to weird people like me, that's like, I couldn't do anything else. It's like the most invigorating experience to be in there and, and to be responsible for doing that because it's so terrifying. That, that's why we do six, eight hour operations and it doesn't feel that way. You, you're done and it's like, oh, it's three o'clock and we started at six. It's like, it requires that kind of concentration, which for some people that are crazy like me, it's it's fun. Wow. That is unbelievable. That's next level. <laughs> Seriously. I'm just like, holy cow. I'm curious about, like you talk about mentors or someone who is a mentor to you. And I, I would imagine in the, that environment, that's such an, like an important part. I don't know. I would be curious to hear a little bit about your mentor or like how yeah. that relationship was or how the impact he had on you. Yeah. So his name's uh, Peter Knight, Dr. Knight. I worked with a lot of great surgeons in Rochester, but he really sticks out as someone who, who taught me the art of cardiac surgery. It's funny, you, you, you seriously develop like a weird complex with these guys. You spend so much time with them and you want so desperately to make them happy, mm -hmm. to make them proud. And, and in the beginning, you, you just can't, you mess up because you're, the, the learning curve is so steep. It's such a concentrated, saturated time in your life that you just can't help but have ignorance. It, it's impossible to avoid. And, and when you're one of these guys who's done it for 30 years, you just have to be so patient. And every day I think about that, how many times he was patient with me because I was being an idiot or I didn't, I couldn't see the obvious thing, which today I see, but at the time I didn't, boy, it's, it's a really neat relationship. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the best feelings I ever had in training was I, I was, uh, in my final year of training. And so I knew quite a bit, I, I could do operations independently and Dr. Knight, uh, I was not on his service. So he had a different resident with him, but we were still around each other all the time. And Dr. Knight had just finished an operation and his patient was in the ICU. That's the intensive care unit recovering. And I was with another surgeon and we happened to be around and there were people gathering in a patient's room. And we all know when you see a group gathering in someone's room, like something's going down. So we walk in there and the nurses are running back and forth. And I look at the, in every patient's room, there's, it looks like a little TV screen and there's a lot of data on there. I can see the blood pressure that's on the left side of the heart, the blood pressure on the right side of the heart 
the pressure in the veins. I can see the heart rhythm. All this data is right there. And, and you get pretty good at interpreting what's happening just by a five-second shot. And so I looked at that screen and knew right away that this guy was in cardiac arrest, had no blood pressure, and we had to do CPR. There's a mob of people in there, and this always happens. Like There's 100 people in there, but no one's really leading it. It's tough. It, it's, it's an interesting dynamic to walk in and run a code. That's what they call it, like a code blue. Someone needs to step in. And I just happened to be in the right place in the right time. I walked in, jumped on the guy's bed, and started doing chest compressions and told the nurse, we're going back to the operating room. Let's go right now. I was basically on top of this guy doing chest compressions as we wheeled the gurney out of the room into the elevator, back down into the operating room. And Dr. Knight happened to be there. And we're getting the patient transferred to the operating room table and doing chest compressions in between. And, and he looked at me, he's like, hey, will you scrub with me, please? And it, it sounds so silly, but at the time it meant so much because it was a room full of physicians and some were attending physicians. And he looked at me, he's like, I need you to help me with this. You know, if you ever heard this, he might be like, well, that's because you were standing next to me. I have no idea. But the point <laughs> is, I felt at the time that I had really earned his trust. And it, it, that's why you, you kind of develop a complex, right? Because something so small can be so meaningful to you. In American healthcare, that's the way we do it. Other countries do it differently. But for us, you have this much time, you got to produce a surgeon or a pediatrician or an ophthalmologist, and that's it, right? You got to let them loose and go. It's a lot more concentrated and intense. Okay, that's an amazing story. And I can't help but think that I understand like a, a small piece of what you're talking about because I've watched so much Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the first time we kind of all met up after you started as a surgeon in Southern California, you were talking about the LVAD program that you had started. And again, I think I know what that means because I watched the like three episodes about the LVAD wire getting cut <laughs> on Grey's Anatomy. But for for real, not out like not in Grey's Anatomy, but in the actual real world, tell us a little bit about why that was important to you to start and what that actually means and how common or rare it is and all of those things. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to go into cardiac surgery was because of this experience I had in at, at NYU when I was a medical student. I was there between 2009 and 2013. And in my final year there, the whole East Coast experienced Superstorm Sandy. Some of you might mm -hmm. remember that. It was a big deal. It knocked out a bunch of hospitals. It put a lot of homes underwater. Leading up to that experience, we NYU had done its first LVAD. LVAD stands for Left Ventricular Assist Device. And it's basically a pump. It's a mechanical pump that you surgically implant onto someone's heart and it circulates the blood for them mm. so that if your heart's failing, you've got a way to live. Heart disease is on a broad spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you've got something that needs to be done, but your heart function is still good. So you can bypass blood vessels, you can fix valves, you can replace valves, but the function is still good. Eventually, the function's not so good. So what happens when a heart, in addition to having blocked arteries and broken valves, it no longer pumps? Well, the only thing you can do is a heart transplant until recently. Recently, you know, recently is in the last 10 or 15 years, more like 20 years now, they developed devices that will artificially circulate the blood for you. That's what an LVAD is. Okay. So I'm a, a third or fourth year medical student at NYU. They had just done their very first LVAD on this patient and he was a sick patient. When you're in the operating room and someone's really sick, 
every organ becomes dysfunctional. So your liver doesn't work. Well, who cares? Well, you care because your liver makes proteins that make you clot. And when you've had surgery, you need to form blood clot immediately or else everything bleeds. You can bleed to death. Mm -hmm. You need a strong liver. You need strong kidneys that will filter the blood and make sure that your pH is balanced and that all of your blood chemistry is normal. You need good lungs. So when your heart is failing, every organ begins to fail. And that happened to be the case with this patient. So this patient had like a 10-hour operation. We put this LVAD in. He was bleeding like crazy. And when that happens, you only have one option really, ultimately, and that's to pack the surgical field, all of the area around the heart with sterile gauze. You pack it really, really tight and you put a big sterile dressing on and you basically contain all the bleeding and you leave chest tubes on the inside. And hopefully, if you do it right, the liver starts to work, it starts to make proteins. You can give the patient platelets and proteins and they stop bleeding over the subsequent 24 hours or so. That's the goal. This patient was in that situation. So his chest isn't even closed. His chest is open with a big dressing on top of it. And we're just hoping that he starts to heal. Then Superstorm Sandy hits. And we literally had to evacuate the operating room and the ICU, which if I remember right, was on the 11th floor in Manhattan. My wife and kids went to stay with her aunt down in Virginia. And I stayed behind and literally with a bunch of firemen were carrying people on sleds down 11 flights of stairs to get them on an ambulance to send them to some other hospital. And one of these patients is this super sick LVAD guy. And I remember people around just like parting ways, just like, this is our first LVAD. Like, this is the sickest patient in the whole hospital right here. And it was just such a crazy feeling that we could do that for someone that it just kind of became, I think we all go through things in life where you get to kind of choose, like, what's the thing you want to do? And I think for adrenaline junkies like me and Neil, sometimes it's like, you just want to do that. Like, what's the craziest thing that you can do? Tell me. And you're like, <laughs> that's the thing. That's what I want to do. Wow. And in a simple way, it was kind of like that. Like, I'm like, that's what I want to do. Like, that's the frontier I want to be on. There was no LVAD program in Orange County before I came here. I was recruited specifically to start the first LVAD program. It's going really well. And we've had a lot of success, but they're still the sickest patients in the hospital. It's uh, it's a crazy thing to see someone go from the very end of heart failure to six months later, they come jogging up to you, having lost a bunch of weight, having reclaimed a bunch of energy. You don't even recognize them. It's happened several times. People wow. will come up and I literally stare in disbelief and I'm like, there's no way this is who I think it is. And they're just like, yeah, it's me. I'm doing great. It is mind-blowing. So it's kind of addictive. It's like it never gets old. And even most of my practice is not LVAD surgery. We do several a year, but, but most of my practice is general cardiac surgery. And you don't get that same effect. It's not as dramatic. Very, very cool. Okay, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I am super curious. And I feel like the average person listening to this is going to be really curious too they don't typically have an opportunity to sit down with a cardiologist or a cardiosurgeon and ask, what is it that I should be or can be doing as an adult to prevent heart disease or having a heart attack or whatever? Because to me, I feel like I don't know that much beyond a Cheerio commercial that yeah, you should yeah. be eating Cheerios because it's good for your heart. I mean, honestly, I yeah. don't, I feel like there's so much misinformation out there. Mm. And I also feel like, 
it's not something that we're schooled in. It's not something that someone teaches you as, okay, now that you're an adult, you should be treating your heart this way. I mean, we know like you should be living a healthy lifestyle, but that, right. but what is that even? So right. what should people know? Boy, that, that's such an important question today. And there's three big things. Number one, don't smoke. Never smoke. It's the worst thing you can do, not just for your lungs, but for your whole cardiovascular system. Hmm, okay. Number two, don't get diabetes. Do everything you can to prevent diabetes. Once you've got that, once you have insulin intolerance and you have sugar circulating in your blood, you get these crystallized molecular entities that will basically wreak havoc in every small blood vessel. And your whole body has small blood vessels in your heart, in your valves, in your kidney, every organ ultimately goes from a large blood vessel to a very tiny one. And diabetes messes with all of that. So avoid mm -hmm. getting diabetes. If you have diabetes, do everything in your power to control it. That means keeping your hemoglobin A1C below eight and a number of different specific things. And doctors are really, really good at that. The last thing we are still learning a lot about, conventional wisdom was make sure your cholesterol is under control. You know, LDL. Which is the Cheerio thing. Yeah, yeah. that's one of the Cheerio things. You know, okay. cholesterol is a molecule and cholesterol gets chaperoned around your body in these big packets called lipoproteins. And they're either high density or low density. Hence, low density lipoprotein or LDL and high density lipoprotein or HDL. And each one of these packets of cholesterol get treated differently in your blood. But long story short, LDL, we have pretty good evidence, causes inflammation of the arteries. That they might be the arteries in your heart, in your brain, all over your body. And when you get inflammation of the arteries, your body, the definition of inflammation is your body's immunological response to some threat. Mm. Whether it's trauma, like you step on a nail, a bee sting, or circulating cholesterol your body will respond by sending very specific cell types to investigate and to fix the problem. And when cholesterol goes into the wall of your blood vessel, your body treats it as a hostile. Mm. And it will do that by sending macrophages and fibroblasts and a bunch of different cells. And the collateral damage is the formation of a plaque. And that plaque will gradually reduce the luminal area of the artery. That means it makes the artery hard and tiny. And when that happens, you don't get good blood flow. That's what a heart attack is. Okay. When the same process happens in your brain, that's what a stroke is. Mm. So the process is the same. So the conventional wisdom is reduce your cholesterol. Now, if the story were that simple, it'd be great, but it's a little more complicated and I, I won't spend a ton of time on it, but basically the absolute amount of cholesterol seems to be a little less important than your body's response to the cholesterol. In other words, you might be someone who has an exaggerated response to cholesterol and therefore you're more prone to form plaques and have heart disease. Those are people who like, I've been a vegan and, and like I eat so healthy and I run marathons, but I had triple bypass surgery. That's why that happens. And other people are overweight, eat cheeseburgers all day and live till they're 90 and never have any problems because for some reason in that person, they are cholesterol intolerant. Their body doesn't see it as much of a threat, hence less inflammation, hence less plaque formation. So, you know, the message I would tell people is try 
to figure out which category you're in. And there are some clues. If you happen to be healthy and active right now, kind of keep doing what you're doing. If you're not in a position, if you're not healthy, if you need to lose some weight, if you are tired, if you're not able to exercise, I would say that's the time to look at, I'm going to say drastic changes to mm -hmm. your diet and lifestyle. Maybe you try keto. Maybe you try plant-based. You try something that will change your macronutrients in such a dramatic way that your body has to change the genes it's expressing to keep you alive. That's why things like keto work. Because when you force your body to eat nothing but fat and protein over weeks and months, it has to change the metabolic machinery. It has to change the way it feeds you fuel so it burns fat. It does other things like that. So there are drastic things you can do to kind of reclaim where you were at. So don't smoke, don't have diabetes. If you have it, make sure it's well controlled. And if you need to lose weight, if you're not exercising well, if you need to make a change, find a smart way to make a significant dramatic change, maybe under the supervision of a physician to kind of get where you need to be, especially if you're in your 30s, going into your 40s. So I'm shocked to hear you almost like promote keto because I always am like talking crap on keto, to be honest with Neil. I'm like, how is this heart healthy? Like, just go eat a bunch of cheeseburgers and then you're going to lose weight. Like it kind of when people are super into keto, I just think that is not healthy. There's no way this is healthy. But I'm shocked to hear you say that that's one of the things that can help like reset people. So maybe I need to be more open minded to that. I think the way you said it is the right way to conceptualize it. It functions as a reset. Okay. Now, we don't know what's going to happen to people who are on keto diets over 25 years. Mm -hmm. But we do know it's very effective at resetting people. And this is a point that a lot of people don't understand, even physicians and, and like PhDs in science. The genes that you inherit from your mom and dad are not the whole story. Your genes are kind of like this infinite software library. Mm -hmm. But the programs that are running on your desktop don't represent the whole library. It's just the programs that you happen to be running right now on your computer. Mm. And if those programs are making you obese and unhealthy and sick, you've got this whole library in front of you. Change the programs. Mm. How do you change the programs? Well, we used to think they were not changeable, but it's painfully obvious. It's, it's not painfully obvious. It's obvious that they can be changed. How do you change them? Well, we're learning from observation that dramatic changes in your diet can change the program. It didn't change your genes. The library didn't change. What you inherit is what you inherit, but you've picked different programs that are running on your computer now, and that's why we see such dramatic changes. Now, okay, once you've reset, now you've lost a bunch of weight, now you're healthier, now you've got more energy, you're sleeping better, I think it makes sense to moderate that diet into something that is balanced and makes sense. No one's talking about this that I've seen. No, people are talking about it's it's all or nothing, right? right. It's either I do keto forever right. or I don't, you know what I mean? And, and in my opinion, I think we're going to get into a phase of smart nutrition and smart genetics where we realize like, no, keto is effective at shocking your diet. Let me say it another way. 
Keto is effective at changing and resetting your metabolic program. Once it's changed and reset, we don't know how you're going to respond to salads now, but probably you'll be okay. We don't know how you're going to respond to oatmeal or complex carbs. Five years ago, maybe you couldn't eat those because you were running a program where every carb you took made you gain weight, but now things are changed. You're running a different program. You can probably eat oatmeal. And we learn that. I mean, there's, it stands to reason. We see that all the time when it comes to allergies. People will, you can overcome certain allergies by exposures and different things, right? You, people have certain food sensitivities that can change over time. Why did I suddenly become lactose intolerant? What changed? Well, your genes didn't change. A program changed on your metabolic computer. So, you know, I, I don't have any science to back that up, but I believe it strongly. It makes the most sense to me. So um, that's the way I kind of look at these extreme diets. I think there's a lot of utility in them in the right person. And mm -hmm. I, more physicians are doing, I mean, they're doing, you know, these like weight loss clinics and all these things. I think it's going to become more and more obvious over time. Super interesting. That leads me to my next question. I feel like all I'm hearing about lately is jokes or memes or whatever about Ozempic and like the, there was a meme of, and I, I mean, I'm not like promoting this. I thought it was kind of not very kind, but there was a meme of Mindy Kaling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And her date was her Ozempic pen because it showed like a before and after of like what she looked like last year, what she looked like this yeah, year. Yeah. And I think she made a reference somewhere recently that that's what she's been using. And and I've even seen people on social media recently talking about how they are going and getting like a generic version of that to lose weight. So what I'm getting at is where is the measure of, okay, you are someone who really needs help. You need to do something like shocking your diet, or maybe you need to use a drug like that versus you're a healthy individual. You don't need to be going to extremes. That's a great question. And it's a little subjective. I think it's what I tell my buddies, right? Your late teens and early 20s, you're invincible. You can eat what you want. And mm -hmm. most guys are fine. Yeah. As you mature, and especially as you have children, there's a lot of interesting hormonal changes when you have children and when your wife has children. So as that happens, your body will change in some ways. Your metabolism changes in some ways. You're saying the guy? Yes. No. Yes. It has a lot to do with oxytocin and some other things. And, you know, there's a whole science behind it. But there's data that that has shown that the male partner of someone having a baby changes hormonally in subtle ways and they're more disposed to put on weight and some other things. Hmm. The point is, at that phase in life, I think you need to start considering those things. And either you're going to enter your late 30s and early 40s pretty lean or you're going to be on your way to obesity. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, you know, few people really straddle the line. People kind of go in or two ways. And we see it, right? We see people who are 40s and look jacked and look great and like surf every day. And then guys who are like pushing obesity and just kind of like keeping a lid on things barely. I think if you're in the latter group, if you're consistently gaining weight, if you're consistently buying larger clothes, if you're consistently doing less exercise, I would say if you were my friend, hey, make a change, a drastic change, do it for a year, reset things. And then you'll be in good shape to go into your 40s. Hmm. But I mean, to answer your question, there's no specific metric. Some of it is just what your doctor says. But, you know, going to the Ozempic thing, it's Ozempic, for those who don't know, is a GLP-1 agonist. GLP stands for glucagon-like peptide. 
And glucagon-like peptide is something that your body makes naturally. What does it do? It actually helps you feel full. When you eat, there's a neurochemical process that takes place. There are many neurochemical processes, but one of them is mediated by GLP-1. And, and the message from your stomach to your brain is, I'm full, and therefore you stop eating. Ozempic is a GLP-1 agonist. It's a synthetic molecule that acts like GLP-1. So when you take it, your body is getting the message, I'm full. I don't need to eat as much. It does other things. It has to do with insulin sensitivity and all that kind of stuff. But that's why people are using it for weight loss. It's a diabetes drug because it helps modulate insulin sensitivity. It also has this effect. It's funny. So like one of the reasons that we, when we were developing Che, we kind of stumbled upon this, right? I'm from the south of Brazil. That's where I was born. They drink a lot of yerba mate. Yerba mate is a really interesting plant found in the south of Brazil. It's a non-coffee plant. It's a non-tea plant. It belongs in its own category. And they drink it down there all the time. It just so happens that yerba mate is a stimulator of GLP-1. Mm. Andrew Huberman did like a whole YouTube video on it. It's well-documented, well-studied. People who drink yerba mate regularly have this almost as a side effect. They'll drink it in the morning. They don't eat till much later. They eat less. And we're learning now, oh, it's because yerba mate causes your body to release more GLP-1. Very interesting. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into talking about Che. And so for anyone who's listening to this, I just have to take over for a minute and tell you that I'm just going to be really honest. I've already told Fab this, but... When Fab said, hey, I've got this thing and he's texting Neil about it and, you know, we developed this like caffeine alternative and Neil tells me about it and I'm kind of like, okay, well, that's nice. We'll see. And you bring it over, Fab. And I was pregnant at the time and was still drinking my Diet Coke every morning religiously. So I think it was the afternoon when you came over and I tasted a little bit of it, but I didn't, I'm actually fairly caffeine sensitive, like second half of the day. So I didn't want to drink a lot of it. And I kind of tasted it and was like, okay, like that tastes good. That's great. You know, hope it goes well. <laughs> and that was kind of that. And then you left and we had the baby. And then not even two weeks after we had the baby, I suddenly woke up and started feeling the same postpartum depression feelings that I felt with our last baby in 2020. And I don't know if it's like, having boy baby thing or what, but it's, it was very different than my other girls where I'd have a little bit of baby blues, but this was like a serious low energy thing where I just felt like I was just dead to the world. Like didn't want to get out of bed, felt those like really like kind of crashing feelings of my, my energy was crashing. My hormones were crashing. Everything was like just dropping to an all time low and that's what I felt when I had postpartum depression last time. And they were, those feelings were coming back. And I just felt I, it almost triggered this, me being really emotional and upset about it because I was like, I cannot be that person again. And I just kept telling Neil, I can't be this person again. I cannot go back to that. It was like a year of just felt like I was living in darkness. So, and I was, it took a while, but I finally went to a doctor, asked for medication, took medication. And it's, I still just carried that for over a year after having Harry. This time I was like, we're not going to wait that long. I'm going to get on top of this. So I was talking to my doctor about it. I was talking to my mom about it. I was talking to Neil about it. And my mom was like, I think you should quit drinking Diet Coke every morning. Like, see if that helps. 
And I usually try to listen to my mom and I thought, okay, I know that there's not great stuff in Diet Coke. I know there's all kinds of chemicals and aspartame is not supposed to be good for you. So I thought, okay, there's that chase stuff. I should, maybe I should just try it. And you were telling us like, oh, it gives you great energy. It sustains you all day. And that was one of the things too, with having postpartum depression before is I could drink like some diet Coke or whatever and feel a little spike of energy, but it almost was like I paid for it because the crash made me feel even worse later. I was like, okay, I'm going to just try this. And the first day I tried it, I felt so amazing. I felt energized and I felt energized all day. And I felt like it completely overcame that feeling of I have no energy and I can't get out of bed. After that, I was like, wow, there is really something to this. And I started drinking it and then Neil was drinking it. And I was mad at Neil because he was drinking it faster than I could drink it. It really has been absolutely life-changing. And I just want before we go into this, I want people to not think like, oh, Fab is Neil's friend and therefore they're trying to do him a favor. This isn't like doing anyone any favors because if I didn't believe in it, we, I wouldn't be drinking it literally every day and getting mad at Neil when he drank all of it. And we're both drinking it every day because it absolutely has been life-changing. So I just got to put that out there so that nobody thinks this is like a favor because it's not. It really has been just amazing for both of us. But I want to know what caused you, I guess, to put this together, to create something like Che. Thank you for what you just said. It, like, It's funny, me and Krista were talking last night. I'm like, Krista, if you're ever bummed, read reviews on Che. It will pump you up. Because yeah. it's like, che it's spelled T-C-H-E, which is a, a Brazilian colloquialism. It's a saying that they use, which just means like, hey, dude or bro. But if you're from the south of Brazil, when you hear the word Che, it brings back really fond memories. And that's mm. where I'm from. So that's why we named it that. Cool. I went through, you know, my own kind of struggle as an attending cardiac surgeon. You need energy. You need focus. You also need clarity and calmness when you do cardiac surgery. Like you can't slam a rock star or a monster and then go sew tiny blood vessels together with suture that's the width of a human hair. Like you're going to mess something up. Mm -hmm. And so the demand, like what I needed was a little more complex, but I was, that's what I was doing. We would buy a case of monsters from Costco. I'd drink one in the morning. I'd go do a case. I'd get out of the OR. I'd go drink another monster. And, and I'm like, this is not, I know better than this. That's mm -hmm. the conclusion I came to. I'm like, I know better than this. this I feel a little hypocritical. That was kind of our search. And I'm like, you know, I know there's better stuff out there. I looked for coffee alternatives and energy drink alternatives, and they're out there on the market. And, and I'm happy that that is an industry that's growing. It's actually growing really rapidly. People are looking for alternatives, but I just didn't find something compelling. Like the most popular one, their whole thing is we're going to get you off coffee, but it's got 20 milligrams of caffeine per serving. And for some people, that's fine. But for me, that doesn't work. Like I, I got to be up for eight hours. You know, I can't drink this stuff and expect it to work for me. That's kind of what started our journey. As soon as we cut, it dawned on me that I'm like, okay, I think we can do better. We, we looked for some key ingredients and we kind of made a short list. Like, okay, if you're going to make something that you're going to drink every day, what what are the must-haves, right? Because mm -hmm. I also was kind of introspective and, and asked myself, well, look, do I take a multivitamin? No. Do I take probiotics? No. Do I take enough fiber? No. Do I take collagen, which is a super important supplement? No. Do I take enough antioxidants? No. So I'm like, well, what the heck, right? So 
we kind of made a list of things that we could add to make this a comprehensive thing that you can use. But the most important thing is what you said. It has to work. Mm -hmm. Like it, it doesn't, you can come up with all sorts of healthy drinks and all that kind of stuff. But if it doesn't work for you, in my opinion, it's just, it doesn't have that element. It will have the same effect as when I took two sips of it the first time on an afternoon and said, oh, that's nice. Yeah, Good exactly. Job. Exactly. Here's a healthy thing that I yeah. drink. Yeah. But the reason Che is gaining the traction that it's gaining is because people, I'm hearing stories like yours all the time. Right. Like, dude, what's in this? Yeah. Like, I drank one this morning. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, on the trampoline with my kids. Yeah. Like, what did you put in this? And it like warms my heart because so much time and effort went into making, I mean, this, this is two years in the making, right? So much time and effort went into making a smart coffee alternative. And that's our whole thing. Like our thing is that this is a smart coffee alternative. It's got tons of antioxidants. It has two forms of plant-based caffeine and they're whole plant, meaning you don't take a coffee extract and add it to Che. I take yerba mate leaves, I mill them to like pharmaceutical grade powder, and I add it to the mixture. I take guadana seeds from the Amazon, same process. So everything in Che is as whole and original as it can be. Mm -hmm. The other important thing is it's really easy to add a little bit of probiotic in something and get a bump in sales. It's really easy to sprinkle some collagen and make, yeah, we have collagen. What's hard to do is go through the literature and the scientific papers and say, okay, where do we have evidence that probiotics help? Mm -hmm. Show me that. I actually looked at that stuff. And when we did those studies, when scientists did those studies, how much probiotic were they using? It happens to be between five and 10 billion CFUs. That stands for colony forming units. That's the amount of probiotic they were using. Now, go and look in your cabinet if your probiotics contain that much. Because in Che, that's what we're giving you. We're giving you the amount that was found in the original papers. Mm. Same thing with collagen. We're giving you the amount that was found in the papers that validated its benefit. And all that stuff takes work. We were talking about this earlier. It's, it's really tempting sometimes when you're bringing, when you're trying something to take shortcuts. And that's been one of the biggest life lessons for me is that with Che, like it was so meticulously thought out. We didn't take shortcuts. When I was looking for a multivitamin, I was like on Alibaba, on all these different sites, looking for concentrated multivitamins. They don't exist. You cannot find a multivitamin powder that's up to standard. You know, mm -hmm. I took the Harvard document, Harvard published a great paper saying like, hey, this is what a multivitamin should be. Boom, it's right there. It's available to anyone. I took that and I looked for it. Couldn't find it. Unless you like take pills and grind them up and, and all that kind of stuff. So literally I made a list I ordered bulk folic acid, bulk vitamin D, bulk, et cetera, all the way down and one by one mixed them into like a master batch. And that's our multivitamin. I just hope people understand like that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to add value in this. You know, it's really easy to take shortcuts, but when we did it that way, that's why I'm like sold on it. To me, it's the best coffee alternative on the market. And that's part of the reason why you feel so good when you drink Che, right? Is because of the vitamins. And well, I have to tell you a funny story. And I told this on my stories, my Instagram stories recently. But af right after I had Bobby, the surgeon came in and or whatever, the OB that did my 
C-section and he came in the next day to check on me and he was like, are you feeling, are you, are you tired? And I was like, I'm exhausted. And he was like, you should drink a Red Bull. And I was like, a Red Bull? What are you talking about a Red Bull? And he was like, yeah, people think when they drink a Red Bull that it's the caffeine that makes them feel good. It's actually the B vitamins. So you should drink a Red Bull. It'll make you feel good. And I was like, that is the weirdest thing I've <laughs> ever heard. But I've thought about it a lot since I've been drinking Che that maybe it's some of these vitamins also that are making me feel so good. Is that part of it? Yeah, so Che has all the B vitamins. There is, it's funny, me and Krista will talk. We, we, we talk about this thing called the Che high. Like I'll talk to her sometimes late morning and she'll be like having all these ideas. I'm like, are you on your Che high right now? Because like you're having all these ideas. It's true. It's something that we've observed. We, we get this great feedback from people and something people are telling us, which we found in ourselves also, is that there is some euphoria that comes with drinking Che and it is multifactorial. One of them is the effect of caffeine. People, people, caffeine is a, a very interesting molecule. Love it or hate it, it's super, super interesting. And it does things not only to your brain to heighten awareness, to release dopamine, but also to the rest of your body. It actually helps increase some healthy levels of adrenaline and other things. So when you couple that with the B vitamins, mm -hmm. and with the way we designed the caffeine release, I think you get that effect. And, and just briefly speaking, the reason we have two forms of plant-based caffeine in Che is not just a shout out to Brazil. The reason we <laughs> do it is because they behave differently. Guarana comes from the Amazon, and the molecular makeup is different from any other plant. The Guarana powder that we put in there basically gets metabolized immediately. That's what you feel right away. Like halfway through your glass of Che, you feel like a new person. The yerba mate has a totally different molecular makeup. And the caffeine that's naturally found in yerba mate doesn't get metabolized until hours later. What a lot of people tell us is, what happened? Like, how come every afternoon at two o'clock, I get the second wave? It's like, it's like the first wave went away and all of a sudden at two or three o'clock, I'm like, I'm getting the second wave. Well, that's the yerba mate. That's how mm. it works. Most of this was very carefully thought out, but we are finding these surprises that we're correlating and they make scientific sense. But I'd be lying if I said that I like it was premeditated. I'm just learning that like, oh, this is so cool that it acts this way. As someone who drank a lot of caffeine myself, when I was looking at these coffee alternatives and, and what else was out there, I was kind of bugged. I'm like, yo, this is supposed to compete with coffee and compete with energy drinks, but it's not doing the job, right? If you're going to make something, it's got to deliver. And so when we made Che, we make three different caffeine levels available to people. There's one called Che 27, which is pretty mellow. It's 27 milligrams of caffeine. It's the same as like a Diet Coke or like something equivalent. There's Che 73, which is about the same as a cup of coffee. And there's Che 140, which is the same as an energy drink. And they're all three are available in both of our flavors. We have two flavors. And that was a really big decision point because the philosophy was if this is going to, this has to outcompete energy drinks and coffee. It's got to be better. It mm -hmm. can't just be the same. I know people who are, who are like daily coffee drinkers and they take a Che 140 in the morning and they're like, bro, what's in this? Like this, like <laughs> some people have, they're like, oh, that one's too much. I have to take the 73. And another benefit that we figured out later was sometimes it's three or four o'clock and you you don't want like a big gnarly shot of caffeine. You, you want something mellow, like you're tired and you still got to get through soccer practice or whatever, but you need something more mellow. 
So like my go-to thing, I wake up, I drink Che Verde, that's our peppermint Kupwasu flavor. And I drink 140, the big boy. I make it through surgery all day. And most of the time, that's all I have. And then if at two or three or four o'clock, I'm lagging because my day started at 5 a.m., I'll drink a Che 27. And it's perfect. Nine, 10 o'clock, I'm like ready for bed. No big deal. And that's kind of been my experience in drinking it is it's just like a healthy, moderate amount that is sustainable. And I just don't, I just don't feel like trash afterwards. So it's, I mean, that's been my experience so far. I'm also just absolutely shocked that you're actually still off energy drinks. I thought that would last like a week or two at the most. Were they zero sugar that you were drinking or the regular one? No, I just was hitting regular. Sometimes I was just, I like the regular, I like the taste of the regular ones. Neil looks great, by the way. You've lost like at least 10 pounds. Yeah. How much have you lost? Um, I'm probably around 20. I was up there for a while and I like, I had, I had Kren pull it up. I'm like, what is, what am I supposed to be based off of my, like I like pulled up the little chart or whatever. You look visibly different. And I'm like, I am the first time in my life. I've always been really fit. i like had a hard time putting on weight as a kid, but now I'm like, I have to physically do something different. So, and, but yeah, the Che has been a huge part of that. Yeah. So Che has 25 calories per serving. A monster that's regular sugar is, I think, in the 350 to 400 calories per can. And it's a lot. It's a lot. And they're all sugar calories. And just for context, 3,000 calories, my man, 3,000 calories is a pound. So if if you think about if you're taking an extra 1,000 calories a week, every three weeks, it's a pound. Right. That's that how you, sense. that's how you slowly <laughs> gain weight. Oh, we man. might have to check my math on that, but that's how you slowly gain weight. And it happens to all of us, all of us, especially as your metabolism, as your metabolism slows down, most of the time your eating habits don't change. You're the same guy, right? In your head, you're still 22. So you're still eating the same crap. But if you don't take note of that before, you know, it, it's been 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds creeps up and on you fast. totally does. Yeah, for sure. You look great though. I'm, oh, I'm stoked you. about that. Yeah. That's due to your support and more, more Corinne's support. Corinne's been very supportive of like after this whole heart thing, I'm like, okay, I got to get serious about it and I need your help. And Corinne's been awesome. But I'm also really like, this has been so educational for me because I was kind of giving Neil some crap because he wanted to basically do keto. And I was like, there's no way this is good for you. So it's interesting to hear that there's a doctor saying maybe Actually, this is a good thing. And overall, though, I've been super impressed with you just being very committed to health changes. And and I think sometimes it takes something like that, like a little bit of a scare where yeah. you have to step back and reevaluate, okay, what if that was a heart condition or something where your body's telling you, you can't keep doing this the way you've been doing it. So. I think you need that like every now and again. And they like, they talk about it in recovery all the time. They're like a doctor or a judge or somebody finally, somebody gets their third DUI and it's like, look, buddy, as a judge, you gotta, you gotta stop. Or a doctor's yeah. like, Hey, seriously, like you, you're going to die. Yeah. So I think you need that reality check. And for me, that's what it was. The doctor's office called me back after running the blood work. And they're like, look, you've got to change some things. You got to cut these things out of your diet. Like, and it was a wake up call for me. And then after our conversations, I'm like, okay, this is, this is the real deal. But luckily there's, there's a solution and there's opportunity to make changes now and, and you can get into good health. It's great. You know, it's funny. I think like 
all of us go through, through this thing where we kind of formulate our lives. Like, what are the things that are in my life? Like, what are the foods that I eat? What are the things that I drink? You kind of build this little pattern that works for you. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of make it your own, you know? It's 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 hard for someone to be like, okay, this is the exact diet that you have to be on forever, right? Uh, this, here's like an all-encompassing solution for you. At least in medicine, we find that it doesn't work very well. You know, people need to kind of make things their own. They have to, if it's going to be sustainable and long-term, it's got to be something that you were like, it's your thing. You tailored it to yourself, you know? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Okay, Fab, we have one last question for you. And that is, if there's one message that you want the people listening to this podcast episode to remember, what do you want that one message to be? As I kind of see the world around around me and around my kids, it's a pretty tumultuous world. And there are a lot of messages that are being just thrown at us all the time about everything, about health, about beauty, about standards, about media, about everything. Through our journey with Che, we've, we've seen some really cool things and we've also experienced some really unpleasant things. It's, I think, so important to make time where you're, I don't even know what you call it, but um, maybe I'll just share this experience. After a really stressful day, long operation, a lot of stress. I mean, we, we manufacture Che, we distribute it, we do everything. None of this is outsourced. We do all of it. And it's a huge job. And I, I'm so thankful to my wife, who's my partner in this, but my brother Rod and my brother Eddie and my sister-in-law and my mom and all these people who are involved in doing it really make it possible. I'm a, a full-time surgeon. This is a part-time thing that we're doing. And after one of these really, really tough days, me and my two older sons went down to the beach and we liked to surf a lot and it was sunset and we got a nice little hour and a half surf session in and the sun was setting. And I just sat there on my surfboard with my two sons and we looked at each other and I was like, you know, boys, I want you to look out into that sunset. This sounds so geeky, but it's true. I'm like, I want you to look out there and remember this because there's going to be a time in life where you have to remember simpler times. You have to remember things in life that make you feel full and not things that take away from you. Because so much of life will ask things of you. I'm sure you guys have seen that, right? Life will ask things of you. Mm -hmm. People who want whatever, right? Whose livelihoods depend on you. They will drain some of that energy. And there has to be time every day where that energy is replenished. For people who are members of the church, like I'm a member of the church, And I need to feel the spirit through the scriptures. I have to feel that every day. I need to commune with the Lord, with my wife and with my kids. We have to have that experience. Some of the best parts of the day is laying down with my kids and reading from The Friend magazine. If you don't know this, you can have, there are episodes of The Friend that go back to 1972. And you can open it up and read these stories. Every issue has like three or four stories that are incredible stories. You just lay there and read them to your kids. I've read from 1972 to 1984 now. And wow. it's this little moment where me and my boys feel the spirit in a in a subtle way, but it gives me this peace of mind that we are experiencing this fullness in life and they're experiencing it and we're experiencing it together. And that's really what matters. All this other stuff is great. I'm super pumped about it. I'm super excited. But if it's not kind of underlined by these experiences, I think you can quickly get to a situation where it's like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Why do any of this stuff, you know? So maybe that's a little more philosophical, but that's the message. 
I love that. Okay, where can people find you? You're doing some really awesome social media messages, right? Pretty consistently about health and about what people should know about their heart health and just health in general. And then also where can people find Che? Yeah, thanks. So drinkche.com is where you can find Che and read about it and look at testimonials and look at all the ingredients. Drink Che on Instagram and TikTok. You can look at what we're doing. So awesome. Well, thanks so much, Fab, for doing this with us. Thank you. This has been super fun. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.